This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, although ordinarily this is a podcast about all sorts of topics under the sun that relates to wealth and how it intersects with the law. In this month of July 2022, we're focusing on basic estate planning. This is the estate planning boot camp series. So welcome if that's what you were intending to find, and if not, welcome anyways, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. We are continuing our estate planning boot camp series. And one of the key documents and really any estate plan and one that I get asked about routinely is the will. And to help me talk about that and more is my friend TJ Ryan. TJ, thanks for joining me. Hey, happy to be here, Brent. Really thrilled to be back. It's such a it's such a basic doc. In fact, I feel like everybody seems like they know what a will is because it's the kind of document that's like on TV and the lawyers reading the will after somebody dies and like, you know, great expectations are all fighting over the various versions of wills. But on a basic level, at least in your mind, so that people can understand this, what is a will? Well, a, a will is the oldest estate planning document that uh, we know of in terms of it dating back to Roman days, if not before that. <clears throat> and really, when I think of a will, I think of a will as the document that changes what is otherwise the a default plan that the government gives you in the form of intestacy, the intestate distribution scheme that's uh, codified in statute here in Arizona. And so what a will does is it's a document executed with certain formalities. Uh, If you're doing a what we would call a non-holographic will um, versus a holographic will, then it's a, a document that is signed by the individual making it, witnessed by two Uh, people. And in Arizona, those people now have to be independent. They can't be related by blood uh, or um, marriage to any of the beneficiaries under the will, which is an important uh, change that happened in 2019. Um, And then that document, uh, assuming it meets with the formalities of Arizona law, then sets out what happens to the assets of the decedent, the economic interests of the decedent after they die. And that that document, that will, is actually submitted to a court which uh, approves it, authorizes it, gives it authority by the process of probate. And it's that probate process that really breathes life into the document ultimately after somebody dies. Yeah. So can you, so, I mean, and I think you, you, you uh, structured that conceptually spot on that it's, you know, it's the document most people would think of as the thing that says, when I die, do this with my property. And, but you mentioned something that are really interesting that I want to, or a couple of things there that are interesting that I want to tease out here just for one second. One of them is that it sounds to me that the way you're describing it is that a will is something that can be valid like when you sign it but it's not actually effective meaning it doesn't really do anything until you die and the court blesses it that's right the the, the term we actually use uh is the term ambulatory uh it, it, and and what that term really means is that it walks along with you uh and it and it walks along sort of at the ready until it's ready to be used, and that is at death. Um, and so you can change a will at any time. As long as you comply with those uh, those standards and those requirements, you can modify and revoke and change wills uh, at any point. So it is that concept of it continues all the way until the end, until that last point in time when you breathe your last, and at that point it, it, it springs into being. But it doesn't spring into being automatically, and I think that's an important point that people should understand. 
it it requires someone to submit it to court. And, and that person typically is either a family member or the person identified in the will as the fiduciary, the person who's going to carry it forward. And that's what we in Arizona use the term personal representative. I know other states will use the term executor, but that's the person who you put in the driver's seat um, and they then have the responsibility to make sure that they gather up your assets and distribute them consistent with the terms of the will through the probate process. Yeah. And it almost becomes, you know, it's this ambulatory document, right? It's sort of like following you around like your shadow and then you die and it springs into being and assuming that you convince a judge or somebody convinces a judge that it works. And it is, in essence, the like handbook for this executor. And I think it's a little bit weird for people to think about like, you know, the executor and what is this. But if you, if you, you know, let's assume TJ dies. So now he's deceased. Well, in the moment that he dies, he still owns things in his name and he's dead. And of course, That's right. dead TJ is really not as effective at doing things as living TJ. So you need somebody who can stand in the shoes of the dead person and basically act on behalf of the deceased person. It's just they have to follow this this handbook that is in the will about what to do. That's right. A smart lawyer once told me that um, really a will in the process of probate is is a process by which we change the books and records of the bureaucrats, right? If we're going to move a house title from the decedent's name into the name of the ultimate beneficiary, that's done through that probate process. And you're right, and it's guided by the terms of the will. If you don't have a will, as I said before, the intestacy statutes will provide an automatic, basic, default estate plan that may or may not fit with your wishes. Uh, right by default, everything goes to your surviving spouse unless you have kids from a prior marriage and then it gets more complicated. If you're not married, even though you've been living with someone in Arizona, it doesn't go to that person because Arizona does not follow common law, common law marriage. And so everything would pass to the children. And there's some little esoteric rules that are beyond the scope of this podcast, but uh, most of the time, everything else is going to go to your kids. And if you don't have any children, then we, you know, get into the family tree and climbing the family tree. Um, but that's absolutely right. Now, I wanted to correct one thing you said, you know, to, mm -hmm. we, you suggested that we have to convince a judge. And that's not always true. We don't always have to convince a judge that the that the will is probatable or, or accurate. Uh, Arizona allows for an administrative process. Um, and we would submit the will through what we call an application to probate. Um, and, and that requires that the will meet certain standards. And that standard is that it's what we call self-proved. And so we talked earlier about the requirements of a will, right? A basic requirement being this, the signed by the individual making the will and witnessed by two, two people who, as of 2019, need to be independent, consistent with the statute. There's another requirement, which is that you can make the will self-proving, that it can prove its own authenticity by having a separate affidavit signed by the, the, the testator, the person making the will, and the two, the two witnesses that makes certain affirmations that the person is acting um, free of undue influence, doing it willingly, uh, you know, and is signing the document willingly. Uh, and these are all laid out in the statute and are contained in any of the good forms, will forms that are out there uh, uh, to have this self-proving affidavit. And then that affidavit is, is stamped by a notary. So you are swearing under oath that these statements that you're making are true. 
And, you know, usually that's an extra page in any of the will forms that we that we see and that we prepare. But what that extra page does is it saves us all the time, effort and energy of having to go and file instead of an application, which sails through in the form of a couple of days. We have to file a petition. And if you file the petition, you get a hearing date that might be 30, 45, 60 days in the future. Go present yourself before a court, put on evidence. It's a much more involved process. So we do prefer to prepare wills that have that self-proving affidavit. Yeah, it's such a good point. And you're you're correct to correct me that in many states, Arizona being one of them, the process of proving that the will is valid, assuming that the will is self-proved, like you're describing, has this special affidavit that's blessed by the statute attached to it, which is it's easy to do once you know that it's necessary, you just attach it. But uh, assuming it has that, the process is actually quite easy. And in many states follow similar rules to Arizona. They're uniform, but not every state is identical to Arizona because every state is permitted to kind of do things the way they want. And it really depends on the process, whatever that's going to be, depends on where the deceased person dies, where they're residing when they die, and where they own property typically when they die. So, for example, one very surprising thing to people from time to time in our fine state, which is not unique. Our rules are very similar to many other states. If somebody dies and they were residing anywhere, but they owned property in our state, just like a house, you can do the probate here. We'll take it. And you could start the probate here just the same as if they had lived here every single day of their lives, including the day of their death. So this this idea of like you do this this will, this document, you were talking about it being like ambulatory. Well, it's ambulatory as, as well in the sense that like it follows you around wherever you go. And then where it is that you die and where you happen to own the property at that moment, that will determine what process the executor or your family or whoever uh, has to go through to prove that it's valid to then make it effective and then get somebody appointed to follow its instructions. That's right. And I think typically we recommend to clients that even if there is property in Arizona, um, that that the probate be operated in the domicile state where they lived. And there's there's a lot of reasons for that. It's it's a little bit cleaner, more efficient. And Arizona has that wonderful domestication statute where we can take the the power uh, the 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 order and the powers given to the executor of the power of, or personal representative, whichever terminology the state in which they were homicide uses and domesticate them here in Arizona, giving that individual, the appointed personal representative or executor, all the powers of a fully formally appointed personal representative here in Arizona. Um, And so I know when I'm speaking with clients about where are we going to choose, you know, and absent any litigation related forum selection issues or whatnot, we are typically going to recommend that they start that probate in the domicile state if that's in another state. Um, and off, sort of springboarding off of that, Brent, there's another issue that clients ask me all the time, especially when they're moving to Arizona. And that is, hey, I signed a will in insert state here, right? Um, I, I was just in Nebraska. I signed a, a will in Nebraska. Hey, TJ, is my will valid in Arizona? And Arizona is very clear that if your will was validly executed in the state that you executed in or that you were residing in at that time, or even where you owned property, that that's a validly executed document for Arizona purposes. Now, whether or not it will be self-proved is another matter. Um, the self-proving affidavit statute is one that's derived from the Uniform Probate Code. So if that state where you're coming from is a Uniform Probate Code state or has something similar to the um the self-proving affidavit statute, you're generally going to comply and be able to probate that 
foreign state will in Arizona if you've moved to Arizona without too much fuss. But that's a question I get a lot. And I do a lot of estate plan reviews for clients who are moving to Arizona, as I'm sure you do. I see you nodding. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, that that's always a suggestion, which is sometimes you don't have to do very much. Um, yeah. But it's but it's something to look at is to make sure that your successors and in interest aren't going to have to suffer going down that formal petition road versus an informal application process to probate the document. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And one that that I get asked all the time, people, you know, for people moving here. And I think that that's exactly right. The answer is, generally speaking, if you did a will in another state and it was valid there when you come here, it's still valid here. So you're good. I typically do want them to refresh the will and do a new will under the Arizona standards for all the reasons you're just, you're describing, because we can attach the Arizona affidavit. We know now it's self-proved here. That's not going to be an issue. There's nothing kind of funky about it. You know, like in California, they have different rules about wills than here. You know, there's not going to be something strange to it that maybe a somebody at the courthouse won't be totally familiar with when we submit it to them. Ultimately, I don't have to explain it to them in the future. So all of these sort of like conveniences. There's a um, there's also uh, oftentimes a big question, I think, uh, that I get asked, I think innocently enough that um, I'm not trying to impugn anybody who asked these, this question to me, but sometimes people will basically ask, do I need a will? Because you just described like the statute, there is a default in the statute already in in every state. But, you know, the question is, well, do I need a will? If the statute already says this, do I need a will? It's it's such a tough question because it, it, this intestacy provides a pathway, right? As long as that pathway is what you want. You know, I, I, I have an example that I give, which is, you know, um, Grandma Clara. And Grandma Clara has no living children and one grandchild still living. And, and Grandma Clara wants to set up her very simple estate plan. She owns a car, a home, you know, a bank account and an annuity. Uh, and in those situations, we might suggest what we call non-probate transfer planning, where we put beneficiary designations on all of those on all of those assets. And in that case, arguably, you could get away with not having a will. The problem is what happens if she sells the car? and buys a new one and forgets to put the beneficiary designation on it. Well, you know, who's the beneficiary? Um, it, maybe it's still granddaughter. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's a long lost child that we didn't know about because she doesn't talk about that child because for all intents and purposes, that child has, you know, left and um, they they think they might be dead. They're not sure, but turns out that child's not dead. Well, under intestacy, that child has an interest, Right. Uh, and and so using a will is really beneficial because it it preserves intent and it and it becomes an expression of intent. And so even in those situations where we're going to do non-probate transfer planning, where we're trying to do everything as simply as possible, make it really um, easy to 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 process after the death of Grandma Clara, you know, we want to have that will as a backup. We want to make sure we have a, something that's going to offset the default provisions of intestacy. Um, and, and I think there's also other opportunities that we can take in the will. For example, we as a practice will put um, burial instructions in there. We want people to know in a document that's verified, valid, notarized, witnessed, what their intentions are relative to the disposition of their of their bodily remains. Um, there are cases where that becomes a litigated issue. and We want to try to put that to rest. 
Personal property can become a really big issue. And where does it go? Especially if you have multiple beneficiaries, um, identifying who gets what personal property can be really helpful. Um, and I would turn the question back to you, Brent. I mean, you know, what are the sorts of things you put into your wills that, you know, are not taken taken and are not addressed, I should say, in the intestacy statutes, but that you're addressing in the terms of your wills? Yeah, there's a couple of things some that have to do with death and some that don't necessarily have to do with death. So the first one is if you have minor or incapacitated children in our state, you can name the guardians or conservators, the people who handle their finances for them um, in your will. You could even do it for an incapacitated spouse, but you do that in the will. And if you don't do it in the will, you you don't get a choice. There, there's a statute that's the default, but if you ever want to have a decision about who specifically is going to fill those roles, that's the place to do it. So it's really critical. Obviously, for like younger people, it becomes even more important who have young kids. So that's something that goes in the will, has nothing to do with intestacy, but you can't deal with it unless it's in the will. The other thing is sometimes tax planning is a consideration and you want to build in certain tax provisions into the will. If it's a very big estate and there are actually estate taxes, uh, which is almost like a, an anomaly now because the estate tax exemption is so high, but when it does matter, it matters. And you can put provisions in the will about, for example, how the estate tax burden is going to be borne among beneficiaries. And so that's the place you, you would put it. If you don't have the will, again, you're out of luck. You don't get, you have no say. Uh, but if you want to have a say, you got to put it in a document. It's got to be in a will. There's a also a, a an added benefit, I think, to having a will in our state just because of our probate process that I don't think is terribly different from many other states. And that is if you don't have a will and you have to go through probate and you have multiple people who survive you, who are going to share in your property, in order to do that property, uh, that probate, everybody has to agree mm -hmm. on who's going to be the, the administrator, whether there's going to be a bond, and everybody has to agree. Well, if if your family is like, you know, 80% of families, everybody doesn't always agree on everything. So relying on that plan is not a really great plan. You can short circuit all of that uh, requirement of agreement across the board by just having the instructions in the will, and then that governs. And so I think there's a, there's an efficiency to it as well. And I'll jump off of that and add, yeah. there's another efficiency, and that is if you go with the standard default intestate plan, assuming you can get all those disputes figured out and pick somebody to act, that person also by default has to post a bond. And bonds are not cheap. You know, uh, we, we just had one the other day that was close to $6,000. Now, granted, this is a a $4 million estate, but they're proportionate. I mean, they're, they're not going to be much below eight or $900, even for a small estate. And that's money out of the beneficiary's pocket directly. Yeah. You don't get it back. It's not no. like a deposit account. Right, exactly. That that money's gone. And so you can avoid that by having a specific provision in your will that waives the bond for the personal representative that you identify. Um, and so that's another efficiency that, that I think has to be taken into consideration. Yeah. Excellent. Well, TJ, I really appreciate it for anybody listening. That's a very quick primer on wills. Hopefully you've learned something from it. We're, we're trying to do these in short snapshots, uh, but to give you kind of like the, the basic important information and considerations so that you've got it and you can refer back to it and uh, use it now and in the future. But as usual, TJ, it is a pleasure. Thanks so much. Always glad to be here. Thanks, Brent. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.